All right, while we're all getting our seats and everything, just a reminder on the trips, we have about 16 or 17 people signed up on the Egypt trip, so that looks like it's going to uh, be a mean a go. That's not full, but we hope to have around 30, so we're, we're well on the way, and that was enough to please our, um, our, our tour, tour, tour group tour hosts, so they're, they're pleased. Uh, so continue to look at that. The Israel tour is going to have an extension added to it for those who are interested. Now, this is going to end up being an, an, an autonomous extension. What that means is that some people who've been to Israel two or three times may say, I don't want to go on the Israel part, but I do want to go to Greece. So we're going to have four or five days, I think it's five days in Greece, and then we'll go from Greece to uh, Italy, I mean to uh, Israel. So that information, I'm still working with that with Lindy, but that just putting that out there as a, a, an addition to that trip. Also, we have the men's prayer breakfast and the deacons meeting on May 18th, Camp Arete be in prayer for all the details that have to come together for that and for the staff and their preparation on July, and that will be July 14th to 20th. And then Vacation Bible School, we need volunteers. We also need Sunday school teachers. Vacation Bible School is July 8th through 10th, and then there will be a memorial service here at the church Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. this Saturday. So... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for our spiritual preparation. This is a time for confession of sin to God. It's silent prayer. We confess sin. It means to admit or acknowledge our sin. It is not reading a grocery list. It is designed to be a private time before the Lord where we face and admit to him our guilt. It is a courtroom scenario. It's not about emotion. If you go to court, in fact, I had an interesting conversation with a lawyer the other day who confirmed this and said, if you go to court and you're emotional, a lot of times there are judges who will throw the book at you. They will give you a harsher sentence if you come in and you're emotional. So it's not about showing remorse. It is about admission of sin. It is facing the reality as David, David did in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. He talks about the fact that he has sinned against God. So it is an admission of what we have done in conversation before 
the bar of God's justice, recognizing that Christ has paid the penalty for all those sins, and instantly on confession we are forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can be here tonight and that we can come into your presence, trusting in your word, trusting in your provision for us, realizing that we stand in grace and that we are to grow in grace. As we have been studying in 1 Peter and now moving into the second epistle of Peter. Father, we pray that as we read through this book and as we study it, that you will use it to challenge us in terms of our own need and the importance of our spiritual growth and reaching spiritual maturity. And Father, we pray that tonight as we begin this overview and introduction that it will help us to have a good handle on what this short epistle is all about. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So open your Bibles with me to Second Peter chapter 1, and tonight we're going to start off with an introduction to Second Peter. We don't have the artwork yet, so until we do, we're going to have these very simple title slides. But this is an epistle that is written according to the opening verses by Peter, and it follows on First Peter. The, top, the topics are different, the subject's a little different, but the audience is the same. So we're going to look at this epistle and remember that the focal point of this epistle is to, in one sense, warn the recipients of the coming of false teachers, but it is also designed to challenge them in the broad sense, with their own spiritual growth and reaching spiritual maturity so that they can handle the false teachers, so that they cannot be taken in by the deceptive teaching of the false teachers, and so that they can uh, realize the many blessings that God has for us in spiritual maturity. So that sort of summarizes it, but we're going to begin by looking at the basic topics of what is usually covered in what is known as New Testament introduction. New Testament introduction is a course that every seminary student goes through when they first uh, begin in uh, seminary. Uh, in, at Dallas, it was in co- com- combination with Old Testament inter- introduction, and you had a, we had a massive textbook that was about that thick, Uh, by Donald Guthrie on New Testament introduction. It's been revised a couple of times. But in these introductory courses, what they address is a lot of the challenges from what we'll just refer to as historical criticism. Now, historical criticism is a 25-cent word for the nickel concept of just plain old Protestant skepticism and liberalism, the rejection of the idea that God 
inspired these books as they claim to be inspired, that he breathed them out according to 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, stating that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture originates in the mind of God, and it uses a picturesque term that reminds us of the fact that we inhale and we exhale air, and that is a, the word for that is pneuma in, in Scripture, the same word for spirit, and it has to do with the role of God the Holy Spirit in breathing into the writers of Scripture the knowledge and the information that will be part of their writing, and then it is exhaled by them in the writing of the Scripture. And so in the Old Testament, this was done under the auspices of the prophet, who would oversee, prophets oversaw what was written, and even though it might have involved a process over time, for example, the uh, uh, compilation of the Psalms took place over several hundred years. We have some Psalms that were, two, that were written by Moses, and that was before 1400 B.C. We have quite a few written by David and by Levites at the time of David, and that's about 400 years after Moses. And then we have a number of others that are written between David and the time of the conquest we have uh, by Babylon. We have others that are written after the Babylonian conquest and exile, and once the Jews return to, uh, to Israel, then you have the process of pulling these together. And that would have been done, many believe, under the oversight of Ezra. Uh, Ezra the priest who wrote Ezra and maybe Chronicles. Uh, we don't know exactly what else he may have been involved in, but it was somebody who's divinely inspired who pulls these things together and may have even written some things like the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which was not written by Moses. He didn't record his death ahead of time, but it's the recording of his death. He didn't write that. Somebody else did, but we don't know who it was. But probably one of the best guesses is whoever is pulling, beginning to pull the Old Testament canon together, one of, uh, a priest or prophet, uh, would have been inspired by God in doing the final editing work and pulling pulling things together. So in, in OTI and in NTI, you have all these questions of authorship and challenges by the critical scholars on whether Moses could have written the Pentateuch, whether uh, Peter could have written 1 Peter or 2 Peter, whether uh, the Gospels were written in the first century or the second century. Questions about authorship, questions about authenticity, questions about canonicity. And so in, an, in a standard New Testament introductory course, this is what you go through. You basically answer the questions I've got up here. Uh, who wrote the book? When did they write the book? Why did they write the book? And when did it become recognized as part of the canon of the New Testament? And when you look at most of the New Testament books, there's more or less general acceptance. There are some that are challenged. There's a few of Paul's epistles that are challenged in terms of are they really Pauline? Uh, there's some others related to uh, aspects of the Gospels. That's a whole other mare's nest of problems. 
but probably the one book of the New Testament that is most challenged by the liberal uh, historical critics is Second Peter. In fact, when I was getting ready to do this a few weeks ago, I pulled down the uh, NTI text that we had uh, by Donald Guthrie, and he had 65 pages just on Second Peter, and most of it was just dealing with all of the arguments as to why Second Peter couldn't have been written by Peter, couldn't have been uh, written in the first century, shouldn't be part of the canon, all of these kinds of questions, and then uh, he would give lengthy ex- explanations of their position, and then equally lengthy explanations as to why the critics were, were wrong. And so that becomes a major part of of this kind of dis- discussion is, did Peter really write this? And of course, we would say, well, why would you question that? Because we just believe the Bible at face value. But there's a lot of questions that are uh, brought into focus. What we know is that in the opening of Second Peter, uh, Peter attributes, or the, the epistle is attributed to the authorship of Peter. Now, one of the other issues, one of the reasons it gets questioned is when you get into the second century and you get into the third century, there's various pseudepigrapha. I bet that's a new word for some people. You have the canon, then you have the apocrypha. These are books that some accepted, like it's only part of the Old Testament. There's about, what, 12, it depends on how they're broken down, 12 or 13 uh, apocryphal books that were accepted by part of the church but never accepted by the Jews as part of the Old Testament was uh, debated a lot. Protestants never accepted the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics accepted the Apocrypha. Then you have another set of books called the Pseudepigrapha. Now, if you know anything about language, you can break it down. Pseudo meaning false and grapha meaning writing. So these were false writings. They were writings that were attributed to people like Peter and James and a few others, but they weren't really written by them at all. And it seems like people wanted to attach Peter's name to a lot of these because, well, Peter was supposedly the the uh, foundation of the church. So uh, because of the rise of pseudepigraphal books in the late second and into the third and fourth centuries, then a lot of people question Second Peter. And the reality is that Second Peter was written at the end of Peter's life, and Second Peter wasn't well known, and so it was among a group of New Testament epistles that were disputed. Now, just because they're disputed doesn't mean they shouldn't be in the canon. Some of them were disputed because they were written to individuals, and so they weren't passed around between the churches, so they were less well-known. First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, Philemon, James, Jude, Second Peter, Second John, Third John, these were all among books that were disputed, and they were among the last to be accepted uh, into the canon of Scripture. There's a difference between disputed books and those that were rejected. 
the disputed books is that they they were more cautious. They they weren't running to the early uh, church fathers were not in a hurry to try to accept books to put them in the canon. They were very very careful. Uh, they needed apostolic authenticity. They needed the content needed to not contradict anything else stated in scripture. This is why even at the time of the Protestant Reformation Martin Luther had problems with the canonicity of James because he thought that James too contradicted the statements that Paul made in Romans and Galatians about justification by faith alone. So anyway, he had his own uh, problems. He also doubted Revelation, by the way, because uh, Revelation seems to come with a curse at the end of it that anybody who alters the words or changes anything is going to come under the judgment of God, and he thought that was a little harsh, so he didn't want to mess with it too much, so he doubted whether Revelation ought to be part of the canon. But those are the kinds of things you study as you go through New Testament introduction. So Second Peter starts off in a manner very similar to First Peter, except you have Peter identify himself as Simon Peter instead of just Peter. Now, Simon is his uh, Hebrew name, Shimeon, and this was would actually it further authenticates that it is Peter for who would necessarily make make that up because often Peter is just referred to as Peter or even his um, his Aramaic name this is his Hebrew name his Aramaic name was Kephas or Cephas uh, there's no seed that is pronounced like an S in Greek so it's a hard there's a hard K there in, in Greek, it's Kephas. And so Peter, to have put Simon Peter here, actually seems to be in the favor of Peter's authorship and not against Peter's authorship. But anyway, so this is how it begins. And then when you get to Second Peter 3, 1, Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. So he's indicating that he's written them an epistle already, And he then says, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So this indicates in a second verse that this is the same author of as we have in the first epistle. So this is really one of the first things that that is leveled against uh, Peter is that uh, he didn't really write Peter. And it's interesting that the early church fathers don't comment on second peter in the second century which raises some questions for people why isn't it talked about now what you'll find is that people come along and they say well they'll find certain phrases in the fathers that echo thoughts in second peter but many of them are rather, it's a stretch to say that they got it from Second Peter. For example, in the third, third chapter, he talks about a day with God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. But that's also stated in Psalm 90. There's some early church fathers who quote that, but they could have gotten that from Psalm 90 and not from, from Peter. So that raises uh, raises some questions. And the answer is basically it wasn't that well known. It had not been uh, uh, 
copied and passed around the early church as some other epistles had that were especially some of the Pauline epistles like Romans and Ephesians and and some of the others like that. Uh, but there are these various allusions or similarities in writing such as First Clement and Second Clement and some of the other church fathers, but they're not always that clear. Probably the most uh, the one thing that authenticates it the most is Jude. If you read through Jude and you read Second Peter, then you will see a huge similarity between especially Second Peter chapter 2 and things that are said in Jude. But it is clear that Jude, even though the critical scholars will, also, will say, they come with an assumption that God could not really inspire things because we don't have supernaturalism. They come with this anti-supernatural bias so that, that they assume at the get-go that the Bible can't be an objective revelation of God to men and through men. It is just a book by men about their encounters with God or their religious experiences or whatever. So they start with the assumption that Peter copied Jude, and therefore Peter couldn't have written it because Peter died a long time before Jude was written. (laughs) See, it's a circular argument so it, it's a lot like, you know, most most pagan thought is circular. You can date the fossils because of the strata they're in, and then you can date the strata because of the fossils that are in it. That's the circular argument underlying the life forms in the in the strata in evolution. It just it just circular. So they're they're assuming that the Bible just can't be true, it can't be what it claims to be from the very beginning. But if you do a comparison between Second Peter and Jude, there's at least 15 or 16 uh, verses that are almost identical between the two. But Peter is predicting the coming of false teachers, and Jude is talking about the present reality of how to deal with these false teachers that are now on the scene. So it makes sense that that. Jude is after Second Peter, and he is using Second Peter as part of his source material. That, of course, validates the fact that Second Peter is uh, is inspired by God and has been written much earlier than Jude, and it would be a an epistle that is validated by uh, by Jude in in his writings. So this is. Um, this is all has to do with with the external arguments on Second Peter in terms of how it's quoted, how it's referred to, how it's talked about by by other writers. So they, the first thing they talk about is the fact that it's not well known among the church fathers, not mentioned by any second century church fathers. Second thing they'll focus on is their differences in vocabulary style and subjects between First and Second Peter. Now, that, that seems to weigh heavy with a lot of people. But if you write at one time in your life about one subject, and then 10, 15 years later, you write on a different subject 
to people, you, your writing will not necessarily be the same because of the different subject matter, the different circumstances, and, and you're in a different position. And this is, as it were, Peter's last letter. He knows it's not long before he's going to die, and he even references different events in his time with the Lord in the epistle that would be, uh, that would be expected from, some, from Peter from someone who had spent three years with, with the Lord. And so there's a number of ways uh, to answer and to address these, uh, these particular things. For example, uh, there's certain similarities between uh, this in the salutation. It talks about Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, it talks about Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then there are some uh, there are some additional things that are said, and in both First uh, Peter and Second Peter, there's the greeting of grace and peace be multiplied to you, and that is stated identically in the two uh, in the two epistles. There are also some other things that are uh, that are brought up in answering this and explaining the similarities. There are. Uh, various words and terms that are used that are common in both epistles. Both use the word epinosis for knowledge, though First Peter only mentions it twice, whereas Second uh, Peter mentions it uh, uh, several times. Knowledge in Second um, Peter is, uh, or excuse me, I got that backwards. Knowledge in Second Peter is uh, epinosis and gnosis, as well as oida, for all of those th- those three different words are translated as knowledge in English. So you have to be careful not to think that every time you see the word knowledge, it's the same. It's the same word. Epinosis isn't used at all in First Peter, but gnosis is used in First Peter, and oida is used one time in First Peter. So those are the only two times knowledge is referred to. But in Second Peter. Uh, epinosis is used uh, four times, gnosis is used three times in Second Peter, uh, and oida is used three times in Second Peter. So knowledge obviously is much more central to the theme of Second Peter. And when he concludes, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a much more central to his theme. We remember that in First Peter, the theme was to encourage and strengthen the believers because they were going to face a future of a future time of, of persecution so there's other terms that are used uh, there's a term of love for the brethren Philadelphia Philadelphos which is used in first Peter 122 and in second Peter 1 7 there's a terms for spot or blemish it's negative without spot or or blemish in First Peter one nineteen related to the Lamb of God who's without spot or blemish, also in First Peter two thirteen, and in Second Peter three fourteen you have the words of uh, a, a spot or or blame or blemish. And so you also have word the word virtue used in First Peter two nine, used in First Peter one three. In fact, first and second Peter have hundred and fifty three words in common, 
which is just a little bit less than what you have in First and Second Timothy. First and Second Timothy, you have 161 words used in common. And so the fact that there's a certain commonality in vocabulary also relates to uh, the same authorship or supports that. Also, both epistles support the historicity of uh, Noah and the worldwide flood, both talk about the coming of Christ, the parousia, and then uh, you have a number of quotations and allusions to the Old Testament recognizing the authority of the Old Testament, all of which is, uh, which is important. A, so that's the third point, is that there are distinctive words that are similar, and that also supports the same, uh, the same author. Uh, external arguments... I'll also include the fourth point that there's just the assumption that Peter borrowed from Jude. I talked about that a little bit already. At, but if Jude borrows from Peter, it makes more sense based on on what I said. I talk about that in my uh, commentary or in the series on Jude. But that Jude, because he talks about the false teachers in the present tense, that he's talking about the present reality that has come to pass now that uh, after Peter's warning in in Second Peter, but all of these dissimilarities can be explained away by different circumstances, different time, different frame of mind on on, on Peter. But if you compare Peter's vocabulary in um, in Second Peter with his vocabulary in his sermons in Acts, they're very similar. So th- th- all of this is substantiates that Peter is the author. Now what happens is when you look at this different some of the differences, the style differences, the level of Greek in 1 Peter is a higher level than in 2 Peter. So people say, well that's because he used and we talked about this last time, he t- used uh, Silas or Silvanus as his amanuensis. And that's what I was taught. That's what a lot of people have been taught. But there's been some good work done on that recently, which I talked about last time, that this language that somebody writes through somebody else is a language, the terminology that's used of sending a message to somebody. That's the idiom. And uh, so that doesn't really work in explaining why there are some of these stylistic differences. But the stylistic differences can be caused by other factors and therefore, it's not uh, not indicative of having been written by somebody else. Now, in terms of the history, we have a quote f- here from Eusebius. Now, Eusebius is an important leader in the church. He's a bishop of uh, in the early uh, fourth century. He's one of the delegates to the Council of Nicaea, and he wrote the first history of the church at that time. And so that's an important resource to go to to find out uh, from his perspective the history of Christianity in the first three centuries. And he writes, as to the writings of Peter, one of his epistles called the first is acknowledged as genuine. But that which is called the second, we have not indeed understood to be embodied with the sacred book. So he, re- he rejected the canonicity of second Peter. But he, was, he, he wasn't the only one, but there were many others who accepted it. But it's disputed. So he says, 
Uh, but that which is called the second, we have not indeed understood to be embodied within the sacred books, yet as it appeared useful to many, to many it was studiously read with the other sacred books. Now, he goes on to say, a little later, he says, among the disputed books. See, they're still trying to put the canon together, what is actually accepted and it was based on several factors. One is either apostolic authorship or association with an ap- apostle. Second is, is it used regularly in the church? It's a recognition of the fact that these books that we have weren't picked by a council and imposed on the church. The councils recognized what books had become accepted as authoritative and which books were only accepted as helpful. And the 27 that we have were all uh, finally accepted universally in, by, by, ver- by various churches across the board as being authoritative, and therefore they were included in the New Testament canon. But the other books were, were none of the books like you hear about the Gospel of Thomas and some of these others, they never even reached the sta- status of disputed. Okay, they were never accepted. They were, there were a few books from the first century that were questioned a little bit, but then they fell out of use because it was obvious that they were different from the 27 that we have in the New Testament canon. And so later Eusebius says, among the disputed books, although they are well known and approved by many, is reported that called the Epistle of James, and Jude, also the second epistle of Peter, and the second and third epistles of John. So by the early third or early fourth century, prior to the Council of Nicaea, these books were still uh, questioned a little bit and weren't quite fully there. But Athanasius, you remember, Athanasius was the key defender of orthodoxy against Arius at the Council of Nicaea. And uh, a little later than uh, 425, uh, excuse me, I got my dates wrong, 325, in the 340s or 350s, he wrote an Easter epistle where he lists the 27 books of the New Testament. And that's generally the date and the event where people people, uh, realize that by this time the church has finalized and determine what that what the authoritative books are, but in the early second century, actually mid second century, you have we have a list of fragment uh, called the Muratorian frag, fragment that lists the accepted books at that time, and they leave out a number of these books. It's not a complete list of the twenty seven, but it's dated around one sixty five. But it lists most of the books of the New Testament, but it doesn't list anything that's not in our New Testament, okay? That's important because there's always somebody coming along and say, see, they're still debating it, and, and they made these decisions to exclude these books, but there's no evidence that the books they talk about as being excluded was ever seriously considered by anybody to be part of the canon. Uh, the, the disputed books were books like Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, the books like like uh, Philemon or Jude that were written to our second John, third John, written to an individual, and so wasn't really passed around a lot, so it wasn't well known. So anyway, we can be, I think, completely sure that Peter wrote Second Peter, and that it should be part of the canon. 
But one of the reasons I go through this is it may not be true for some of you, but there are those who will be listening to this who are going to be going to uh, a college somewhere, and like me, they may go to take some religious course where they're told that Peter didn't write Second Peter. And so they need to have access to information to know uh, where to, how to answer this. Uh, this is very, this is important. I took a course, I think it was my junior year maybe in, in college at the, and it was taught by the guy who ran the, the Baptist Student Union, and it was on the Pauline Epistles. And I could tell just by the language the guy used as he was explaining Scripture and different things that he didn't have a solid view of the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. And though I had to write a term paper on the major doctrines of Paul, one of them I chose was inspiration and inerrancy. He was back. That was a day when uh, when there were professors who were objective, and even if you didn't agree with them, if you presented a a well researched opposite view and you expressed it well, then they wouldn't grade you down just because you disagreed with them. Now, today, you go to a lot of colleges, university, or high school, you disagree with the professor, they'll fail you. So sometimes all you have to do, and my mother used to tell me this, just regurgitate the garbage they tell you so you get the grade. Don't try to convince them that you're right and they're wrong. I did listen to that. Okay, when did he write? This is another interesting thing about Peter that's, that's important to understand is that, that Peter mentions near the end of 2 Peter the writings of Paul. This is always uh, an encouragement to anybody who's trying to understand Paul. He writes in verse 16, 2 Peter 3.16, "...as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand." So if Peter thought that Paul wrote things that were hard to understand, then you you can say, okay, that's a little hard for me to understand. So he writes after Paul has written a number of his epistles. He writes before he dies, and we can date his death pretty clearly to about 66 or 67 uh, A.D. under the Neronic uh, persecution. So it's bef- 67, 68 is uh, when, when, um, when he would die, somewhere in there. And, so, and it's also before Jude wrote. So most people date it around 67 uh, A.D. and that he died in Rome. We know that he was going to be crucified. He did not want to be crucified like his Lord. He didn't think that he was worthy of that, so they crucified him uh, upside down. But it's clear that he knew that his death was approaching. In Second Peter 1.14, he said, Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So this, we're, pretty, we're able to pretty clearly cite this, and I would think that in contrast to his earlier epistle being written from Babylon, literal historic geographical Babylon, he wrote a Second Peter from Rome. And just before he was uh, he was martyred, so that's the date. We've looked at who wrote Second Peter, when did he write Second Peter, and third, why did he write Second Peter? Now this is kind of interesting because uh, people come up with some different ideas as to why Peter wrote. For example, in First uh, Peter chapter three, he writes. 
uh, I now write to you this second epistle to, re, uh, to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful. That's another way of saying remember. Uh, mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Uh, and so several times he uses the word uh, reminder and to remind them of something. And so there's some that think that he wrote this as a reminder he uses the word knowledge many times, so there are some who say that it's all about encouraging people to know the Scriptures and to know the truth. Uh, it talks about faithful living, and so there are some who emphasize that as his main idea. Others say it's to establish him in the faith. I think all of those are part of his purpose. They're sub-purposes, but he is writing primarily to warn them, to encourage them to grow strong in the truth, to know the truth, to be spiritually mature so that they can handle the, the false teaching. They won't get sucked into it. They won't get deceived. And that's an apologetic emphasis. And that's important to teach people the truth and teach, teach it well so that they can understand what the truth is, but they also have to understand uh, that there, there are, there's false teaching out there and what some of the basic problems are in the false teaching, and that's what he does, uh, that's what he does as well. So that covers the, the purpose. We'll get a little more clarity when I do, our, do a summary and fly over of the, um, of the epistle, and we may start that today, but I don't know if I'm going to get all the way into that. Canonicity. Uh, in the early church, it was disputed and one of the last books to be recognized as inspired. Both Second Peter and Jude were in that last group, but they were accepted. And by the middle of the, of the uh, fourth century, they were well accepted and nobody disputes it from, uh, from that point on. The only issues in canonicity later on were whether or not to include other books like the Apocrypha, which was part of the Old Testament. There were never any New Testament books that had any level of of acceptance later on, despite what we see in some of these uh, books that are coming out, the Gnostic Gospels and uh, the the other books that that had novels and such that have been written about this, and it's becoming a popular idea. This is so important because it goes to the issue of the authority of Scripture. And when we look around us at the assaults that are coming against us in our culture, it all comes down to authority. Over and over again, we are being assaulted on all kinds of issues that, that have been part of historic Christianity, and no longer are they accepted by, by the majority of people in our culture. In fact, there's a situation recently that occurred at Taylor University, which is in Indiana. I went to seminary with a couple of uh, men who had graduated from Taylor, their undergraduate work, and it's considered a fairly uh, solid, historical, historically middle-of-the-road evangelical liberal arts uh, university, but they had invited, the administration invited Vice President Mike Pence to speak at the uh, at the commencement this May. 
and a large number in the student body signed petitions, I think 3,000 or so, that this violated Christianity. Mike Pence couldn't possibly be a Christian because he's a homophobe and he's a racist and he's a nationalist and all of these other views, and they staged a big demonstration. Fortunately, the present president of Taylor said, forget it, he's coming, and he stood his ground. But when we have Christian kids at a Christian university protesting against the coming of a solid believer like Vice President Pence, and Vice President Pence is not, is not combative. He's not going out there and making controversial statements about homosexuals. He's just taking the historic Christian position about homosexuality as a sin. He's not marking it out as some sort of special sin or a sin that will cause you to lose your salvation or anything like that. And the very fact that a segment of our culture knows he believes that, they are just livid. They're so angry. They can't think straight. They're cross-eyed with anger. And we have a whole culture like this. And never, ever uh, forget that it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you have ever said about homosexuality or what you have said about uh, the importance of a nation or patriotism or any of these things that are being challenged today. If people who disagree with you know that you believe that, they will target you just because they can't stand to have somebody alive who disagrees with them and takes this other position. It is a key part of spiritual warfare. I held a position in my first church that really angered about five people in the leadership, and they used the next two two years to slander me and badmouth me and to spread all kinds of bad rumors, and it all stemmed from the fact that I did not hold to their view. I did not believe that women should teach men the Bible. And that meant in Sunday school. But I went to that church, and there were three older women who taught in three classes for seniors. And I told them when I went, you've done this for 30 years. I'm not going to kick anybody out. You know, that's not going to be an issue. And yet the very fact that I, they knew I thought they were not right or not biblical so inflamed them that they made it their mission to get rid of me which eventually caused me to be fired and the church split. Never forget, just because you haven't said anything specifically and you're not engaged in a battle, that those who know that you hold a biblical view are going to hate you, hate you for it, and they're going to do whatever they can to destroy you simply because you think they are sinning and that they're wrong. The arrogance of unbelief is beyond description. So... Uh, Peter is warning them of what's going to come with these uh, with these false teachers. So, in terms of all these canonicity issues, uh, the epistle was finally recognized. It was recognized by many people, even at the time uh, that Eusebius wrote, as he as he states. And by the middle of the fourth century, it was recognized by people like Jerome and Athanasius, and later by Augustine and Ambrose and was then accepted as such in the canon lists at the Council of Laodicea by 372 and also the Council of Carthage in 397.
So he wrote to prepare believers to stand against the coming of false teachers. So let's start getting an overview of what Peter is writing about in Second Peter. Now, the main thing that we ought to recognize is that Peter is not writing about Gnosticism. There are some people who have said that in the past because that which the... That which his opponents, the false teachers, taught was similar to Gnosticism. But we know from history and from writings that Gnosticism as a developed system really doesn't come into effect until the second century. So people who say, oh, Peter's writing against Gnosticism, John in 1 John is writing against Gnosticism, they're not writing against Gnosticism. But Gnostic ideas didn't come along in the second century. They had been around for a a number of years. Some of them were developed out of Neoplatonism, and any form of Platonism and then later Neoplatonism denied the importance of the material and made this dichotomy between the material and the immaterial. So anything that is material is sin, Anything that is immaterial is not tainted by sin. So Jesus really didn't die physically on the cross. It only appeared that he died on the cross. That's called docetism from the Greek word dokeo, meaning appearance, or it seemed like he died on the cross. And those ideas were around in the first century. They just weren't systemized into a Gnostic system as such until later in the later in the second century. So these ideas all existed uh, somewhat earlier in the first century, and they were present in the, in the Greek culture because so many unbelievers had been influenced by ideas. And just because somebody has ideas doesn't mean they've, they, they've come from an organized system. You can go back into the early 20th century and you can find a lot of people who held to ideas that we later call postmodernism. You can go even further back in history, and you can always find people going all the way back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden who denied the existence of absolute truth. That's a benchmark of... I hear a little rumbling out there. Uh, that is a benchmark uh, teaching of, of postmodernism, that there's no absolute truth. But it doesn't come, become systematized until you get into the early 20th century, and that's, that's, when it's, uh, that's when it's recognized. So Peter comes along, and he's warning them about these different ideas that are taking place, uh, beginning to show up in the culture, and are leading believers away. So when we look at, uh, at Second Peter we realize that he had several things that he wanted to emphasize with his audience. He wanted to encourage them to be spiritually mature. If you look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says to them, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now, isn't that interesting? You might think that Peter believed in the importance of repetition as a pedagogical tool. You know these things, but I need to remind you of these things. It it was interesting. I had a conversation with someone yesterday, 
and we were talking about some things, and he said, it's so interesting that there are people that he has heard about, and I've heard about them too, that believe that they have learned all of the doctrines of the Bible. They have their doctrinal notebook, and they know all the doctrines of the Bible. I say, yeah, I always laugh at that because because I grew up getting a better theological doctrinal education than most people and most of you, and I then went to Dallas Seminary for a master's degree and a doctoral degree, and I studied every single day and read all of the time. And the more I read and the more I learn about all the doctrines in the Bible, the less I think I know. We just barely have a thimble. If you compare it to a thimble full of water in the ocean, that's our comprehension of the doctrines that are in the Scripture. But I do think that as we grow and mature, the motivation shifts And when we're young and we're hungry and we want answers to our questions about life and we have all the decisions, the important decisions of life in front of us, then we're hungry to get those questions answered. But what I've observed is that when people get into their mid to late 30s and they've been under Bible teaching for 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years, then they think that they've got their questions answered and they don't make the transition to the next level. And the next level, as you move through spiritual adolescence, the next level is that you're, you're here not to hear anything new because there's not much new that I can come up with that you haven't heard before. But you need to be reminded day in and day out that you better trust the Lord in every situation and problem that you have. You better be reading your Bible every day. You better be praying. You better be uh, developing your skills in using the faith rest drill. You better be memorizing Scripture. You better be loving your brothers yourself. And as Jesus loved you, all of these things, we just constantly need to be reminded because the sin nature is constantly trying to obscure this in our soul so that we don't remember it. So the people that fall away in their adolescence are the people who think they arrived. And so then they just go off and they and they live on their own, and they don't give much thought to church. And before long, they're not living any kind of a Christian life. They may know a lot, but they're not applying a lot anymore, and they need to be reminded a lot. So that's what Peter is doing. He is reminding them of the importance of living the spiritual life and pursuing uh, spiritual growth. So he uses the word remind in verse 12, again in verse 13, again in verse 15. And he also focuses on the character qualities that should be developed in your life. See, it isn't just about knowing Scripture. It's about the character that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. And so this is what he talks about starting in verse 5. He said, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Notice he piles these up. Faith develops virtue. To virtue you add knowledge. Notice knowledge isn't the first thing. I don't think he's giving them these in a list of of this develops into this and this then develops into that because we know that before you get very far you have to have some knowledge of Scripture uh, to develop any level of character virtue. 
So, and he just talking about you have to, all of these different things need to be added. Knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness, which is a term for spiritual, uh, spirituality and spiritual growth, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. You don't take these and make them a stair step. That first I get to the first step and then to the second step and then to the third because spiritual growth is a dynamic where all of these are being developed together in each of our lives. So he's emphasizing the importance of of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. He is... uh, as he is approaching death, he wants to hit the high points and encourage them to be prepared for that which is coming. And so he talks about that. He also talks about the uh, importance of the Word, and he talks about the importance of Christ. Part of what's going on here is, is as he gets to the third chapter, he's going to talk about eschatology and the coming of the kingdom, but he addresses this as a side issue in verses 16 to 20 when he talks about the transfiguration. He and John and James were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses showed up and they saw Jesus in all of his, all of his divine glory. And he said, but then the kingdom didn't come. And so he's teaching them that the kingdom will come, but in the meantime, they need to pursue uh, spiritual maturity and and spirit, spiritual growth, and above all, he wants them to not be deceived by the false teachers, no matter what comes. And so he talks a lot about that in the second chapter, and then talks about a couple of instances of their teaching in the in the third chapter. So this is what this is all about, and it has a heavy emphasis on knowing, a heavy emphasis on knowledge which tells us that in each of these verbs emphasizes a little different aspect and that we need to know the Word. And that doesn't mean simply showing up three times a week and listening to me on the Internet or listening to other teachers here and there. It means internalizing the Word, not just the concepts, but internalizing the Word, memorizing Scripture so that you have that to hold on to. What I always remember is the stories I read about Vietnam POWs and how when they were in uh, the Hanoi Hilton and other prisons, they developed codes, and these were men who had grown up in churches and grown up in Sunday school, and they, they could just remember bits and pieces of verses. And they developed codes, and they would put together promises. One guy would remember this verse or this clause. Somebody else would get that. And they, this is what sustained those men in that horrible captivity uh, in the Vietnam War as they learned the word and they, they memorized the word. I, I've forgotten his name now, Jerry something or other, but he was, one of, he was a long-term prisoner in uh, the Hanoi Hilton. And when he got back... Uh, he went to Dallas Seminary, graduated the year before I started, but then went back into the Navy as a, ch- as a chaplain, had a great career there. But his life was turned around by the fact that he was a POW in, in Vietnam, and he he 
was challenged to to get with the word and use those promises every day in in order to survive and see this is what peter focuses on right at the beginning the sufficiency of what god has given us in verse uh, 3 as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. We need to be memorizing the word and internalizing it. That is, uh, it's through that knowledge, and the knowledge isn't the end game, it's the means by which uh, this is accomplished. So next time what we'll do is I'll come back and we will do a flyover of Second of Peter to see all the things that we need to study and that we're going to learn as we go through this epistle in order to prepare ourselves for what's going to come because we're like that first generation of believers. There's going to be a lot of opposition against us in the next 10, 15, 20 years, and we're not, most of us are not going to escape it. And, and all of the warning signs are on the horizon and it's it's it doesn't look good at all. There are so many people in positions of power today that hate Christianity. There are academics, there are teachers, there are uh, people who are in power in in school boards and city councils. Maybe not as much in Texas, but they're here, and it's much much worse in many other places. But it's it's not getting any better. If you look back over the last fifty years, the years of most of our lives. Has it, has it gone in one direction? Just ask yourself, which direction has it gone? Has it ever gotten better? Is it getting worse every year? There have been a few years where it kind of leveled out, but then it goes down again. It's not going to get any better. That's not, that's not a good news. That's not an evangelium. The good news is that God is greater than anything that's going to happen to us, and he's going to sustain us. But he's given us the way to do it, and that's in his word. And that's why you have that wonderful verse in verse 3 that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it's important that we internalize that through the knowledge of his power and the promises that he's given us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the true encouragement that it is for us to challenge us to do that which is that which will uh, bring about spiritual maturity to redefine our priorities to re-sharpen our focus on your word and the truth of your word learning what it says internalizing the words of scripture internalizing the verses of scripture the promises of scripture and further understanding and clarifying the great teachings, the doctrine that is in the Scripture. And we pray that we would be responsive to that challenge. In Christ's name, amen.